Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hey everyone, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Patron Medical with another great episode of Hills and Valleys this time with Dr. Jane Morgan. Now, Dr. Morgan caught our eye because she was somebody who um, quite often was posting and uh, sharing content on LinkedIn and other platforms, not only around COVID-19, but more specifically also around diversity in the field of medicine. Um, She was also recently on CNN discussing the COVID task force, and so we had to have her on to to talk. So let me give you a little background on Dr. Morgan. So Dr. Morgan is a cardiologist and the clinical director of the COVID task force at the Piedmont Healthcare Corporation, Atlanta, Georgia. And within this role, she's developing ongoing community outreach in conjunction with the division of diversity and inclusion between Piedmont and the African American community it serves. Uh, Dr. Morgan is a native Atlantan and completed her bachelor's in science degree at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, and her medical degree at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. She went on to do her internal medical residency at George Washington University up in DC, and both her cardiology and pacemaker fellowships at Mount Sinai Medical Center down in Miami, Florida. And previously, Dr. Morgan was the Director of Innovation at Piedmont Healthcare, where she set the vision, trajectory, and the strategic scaling opportunities, as well as seeking key partnerships and stakeholders to progress these goals. Now, she has a wonderful background and a lot of uh, key lessons and wisdom to share to a variety of people, especially young physicians, and tenured physicians who are trying to expand their roles within innovation and of course diversity and inclusion in the medical community. So without further ado, enjoy this great episode with Dr. Jane Morgan. Hey everyone, so Omar I'm Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petro Medical, and we have another fantastic interview for Hills and Valleys. This time I got someone who's quite hard to get a hold of. She's got her hands in a lot of different projects and, and different things in the industry, both in the academic and private sector, as Dr. Jane Morgan. Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Omar. I love being here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, for the listeners out there, I mean, uh, Dr. Morgan and I have been connected on LinkedIn for some time, and I've just been really inspired by the posts that I've seen. You know, one week she's on the news on CNN talking about vaccine trials. Another time she's dealing with innovation. Another time she's a physician. So there's so many things that she's involved with. And I, I knew that our audience would love to hear from somebody like her. So I guess the first question I have for you, Dr. Morgan, is who is Dr. Morgan? Where are you from? How did you get into medicine and innovation? Like, what's that story? Yeah, so I am um, a native Atlantan. I am a graduate of Spelman College. I went to medical school at Michigan State and then uh, internal medicine residency at George Washington University, and then cardiology fellowship at Mount Sinai. So that's a lot. I moved around. Um, I practiced cardiology for a while before going into industry, meaning the pharmaceutical industry at Solve. Uh, Solve was then acquired by Abbott uh, about four or five years into my tenure, and I became um, part of the acquisition. I got acquired, my first experience in being acquired uh, with, yes, <laughs> without, <fun> uh, <laughs> without my input, <laughs> I was just acquired. <laughs> and, uh, and all of my projects were killed. So that was a blow to my ego. Abbott was not interested in the projects that I was working on, the drugs that was um, leading the cardiorenal, which is the, the heart and kidney division 
um, of, uh, of Solvay. They weren't interested in that. So they offered me an opportunity to work um, in their medical device division out in California. I had never done devices, but um, that was my only opportunity that was offered. So I guess it was this or, the, or hit the highway. So I took it. Um, and fell in love with devices. Um, I liked the whole, at the time, so Solvay bought, I mean, Abbott bought Solvay at the same time that it bought a company called Evalve. Evalve was a company that had a device called the Mitra Clip, which would be the beginning of the whole structural heart. Ah, that was um, a big thing. Right, so it would be the beginning of the whole structural heart revolution. At the time, we didn't know that. And, um, and so what Abbott did, I thought very smartly, was it left eValve entirely intact and brought it into Abbott as a division. And they created a new division called the Structural Heart Division. But the Structural Heart Division was actually the eValve company, completely, including their location, everything. Their building, wow. nothing changed. And they allowed it to run. Uh, they decided to bring in myself during the acquisition as a cardiologist to add to this eValve team, which was really the structural heart division of Abbott. And that's really um, how I began in devices. And essentially, even though I was working with Abbott, I was essentially working at a startup. They allowed all of the executives were there. Everyone was there and they ran as a startup and I loved it. Moved much more quickly than uh, a big pharmaceutical company. Decisions were made much more quickly. Um, things changed much more quickly. Um, the decision makers from the top to the bottom were all at the table. And that was just an environment that I really enjoyed. I thrived, wasn't aware that that existed. And so, um, you know, all of that came out of the acquisition. So from there, I was at the American Chemistry Council as chief medical officer before coming to Piedmont, where I've been for the last five years in a multitude of roles. I was hired to lead the cardiovascular research program, where I built out the entire structural heart feasibility program since I'm fresh out of Abbott, right? My structural heart. That, that worked oh, out. Oh, I see a need here. But that's we can have a structural big, heart program. That's a big, that's a huge undertaking, especially at a, at a system like Piedmont. Mm-hmm. What was that? What was that like? So actually, it was um, less difficult than one could one might imagine because I had excellent physicians, cardiologists, interventionalists who were already there, very steeped in the aortic valve space, utilizing the TAVR valves that were on the market. Were very interested and just um, didn't have that piece of the puzzle where they could begin to do these in trials. And then I was hired with this big now structural heart background. They're already in structural heart, very hungry and interested to move into clinical trials. And so it was like just the pieces of the puzzle coming together. They got that final piece that came in, somebody could, who could actually develop this research for them. And off we went. We brought in all the mitral trials. We brought in tricuspid trials. Um, it was a big support to our valve center. And we were off to the races. But the success of that was predicated on people who were already there in place. And I was the final piece that needed to come into place. They needed that research piece to make it work. And so when I came, the structure was in, in place. They just didn't have 
um, the capability or someone who's able to build out that research part. So it was easier than you think as far as I didn't have resistance, but then obviously the whole part of you've got to actually build it and get the clinical trials in and get your teams together and right. So that was hard. Interesting. Well, I got I to gotta say, I, I, I'm going to respectfully disagree on one part of it. You say that you, you were a piece of that, but based on the, your energy and what I see of you online, I think you probably more of the catalyst that made that whole thing happen. That's just my personal opinion. <laughs> I could, you know, you're, I appreciate you being so humble. But I mean, well, I will say it takes a team, but I certainly was the final piece that, um, you know, was, was able to, to build that and take it over the finish line. Um, however, I couldn't do it if I didn't have doctors who already um, were interested in these valve placements. So I could have, it could have been that I would have needed to start it from scratch, start from scratch and, and actually hire physicians. Yeah. In the area. So my specialist existed when I got to the system. That's nice. So essentially yeah. the foundation, the foundation was there. And I guess as the old saying goes, like, you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, you got to go there. Right. So right. Something like, I, I want to go back, back to a little bit, you know, from your time in medical school and residency, you know, uh, through your your experience in, in devices and industry, then back in innovation, mm-hmm. who were the who were the mentors that you have? How, how did they influence you? Because you didn't just show up to the Piedmont. This happened on its own. There was right. some there was some wisdom and training that you carried with you, so right. that when you arrived, you knew what to do and how to essentially align and, and mm-hmm. empower this team. Who were those mentors? What kind of things did they teach you? Yeah, so I will say, you know, my my experience is probably um, atypical of most people, but still very typical for Black physicians. And I would I would say with sadness that I never had a mentor. There was never someone who reached out to me. I think um, the the uh, transition in medical school can be very lonely and isolating. Yes. Um, and you know, and I think. You know, my residency program actually was, you know, was excellent. But, you know, the leadership in my cardiology fellowship was very hostile. Mm-hmm. And um, that was, you know, I would say three years of suffering through. Um, and not only uh, was uh, I one of just a couple of women, um, but, you know, there were not black people there either. Maybe just one of a couple of blacks. And, you know, I think it always starts with leadership and the, the leadership, the head of the fellowship program uh, was very hostile and unsupportive. And so I think part of when you're looking for um, a story of a journey, you know, my my journey, I think, is is different from the journey of the majority, but typical of the, of, of uh, the journey of uh, people maybe of black and brown persuasions. And so, and so I think it can be challenging. Now, um, should my journey typify what others do? No, you should certainly, certainly seek out mentors and maybe seek out even champions. Um, I would say that at times in my career, I have tried to do that and have approached people and it just hasn't um, been welcoming. And so for the most part, you know, my successes and also my failures are predicated in this innovation space on being able to be agile um, and not fragile and being um, able to pivot 
Um, being able to understand your worth, even when others don't understand it. Um, and being able to, to uh, stand on your own two feet, which I think um, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs have to be able to stand on their own two feet, right? You're giving pitches and you're trying to convince people who have no, um, uh, no vested interest and maybe don't even know much about it and maybe don't even think it's a value. You've got to really stand on your own. And even after multiple rejections, 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 it's your internal fortitude and passion and understanding of what you're doing that keeps you going forward. And I would say um, in that way, I tend to have a lot of that, maybe more than the average person of that fortitude, of that resilience, of that moving forward. But I would say, you know, in many, in many instances, um, my journey has been hostile and it's been, you know, unfair. I've seen people, you know, move ahead that probably shouldn't have moved ahead. That being said, I think mentorship is incredibly important. Champions are incredibly important. These are people who can speak your name in rooms and in situations to which you would otherwise have no access and they can provide that access to you. And so if you are able to connect with people, they don't have to be of the same gender or the same race or, or anything, just someone who's able to help you move forward. And I think in that way, I have reached back and spend lots of time with students and people younger than I am. And I really try to bring people forward and help develop their career because I think in my career that that was lacking. Um, and I don't do it for that reason. I do it actually because I do like to teach and I like, and I like to mentor. Um, uh, and I like to see people, especially women and minorities, really have an opportunity to reach their potential. So, Absolutely. And I love that you shared that because, you know, fortunately, fortunately, I think, you know, compared to a few decades ago. And so my, my father, uh, he's he immigrated to this country from Iraq. He was a general surgeon up in Chicago. And so you know, I heard things uh, very similar to what you just shared. And fortunately, I think in society today, we're, I, you know, we're definitely in a better place. And there's still a lot to be done. But I think, at least if I can speak for, for my generation, something that I think a lot of people can learn a lot is when you don't have those things, when you don't have someone in your corner supporting you or, or, or empowering you and everything, how do you do that with, from, how do you get back to the most important person, which is yourself? And it sounds like you look to yourself and you pick to yourself and said, I don't care what, you know, these people have to say. I don't right. care about the support that I'm not getting. All I need is myself. So what can I do? And essentially you took the responsibility on. Right. Yeah, I took the responsibility on and I think it's a matter of surviving, but I, I would like to see, um, you know, people of color in science, in technology, not have to survive. We need to be able to transition into thriving. Um, but, you know, oftentimes we have to survive. Our careers are often marginalized. You're not uh, a part of the main core of the organization or the academia. You're a part of, quote unquote, special projects or whatever the special thing or, yeah. or you, you build new entities for them. And once it's built, it's, it's handed off to someone else and you, you are moved out. And so this marginalization is very common throughout the entire, um, throughout our entire industry for people of, uh, for people of color, especially. And I think part of it is that people see us with their brains and not with their eyes. And so 
what they see is, you know, all of the stereotypes, you know, blacks are dumb, women are docile, blah, 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 everything that they see. And you're constantly fighting against um, these stereotypes that people have inherently, and they're not able to see with their eyes what is exactly in front of them and the person that they're actually working with because they can, because your brain is so powerful no matter what you you really have to have significant experiences to overcome whatever has been integrated into you as you in your formative years and okay. so it's then so that's very difficult and i think you know certainly it's, it's difficult to overcome an entire boardroom of that you know one or two um, may be different and so um it can it can sometimes be a lonely journey um however that being said you know, some of, I've made a wealth of friends in this journey. You know, everyone is not like that. I'm talking about the system, but within the system are all kinds of people. And so, you know, certainly there's a lot of positive activity. And as you said, you know, I've had a, a very interesting career. Um, and I think a lot of the, I laugh when you use the word interesting. Interesting is, you know, there's a, a old Chinese proverb that's a curse, actually. It's a Chinese mm-hmm. curse. And it says, may you have an interesting life. <laughs> I'm, I was good to know because my boss is Chinese, so I have to talk to her about yeah. that. She'll probably, That's a curse. Uh, may you have an interesting uh, life. So when you, when you introduced my career as interesting, I, I laughed because um, that in, within that interesting encompasses um, the need to have been resilient, the need to reinvent yourself repeatedly, the need to be able to uh, stay on your feet and to move forward. And all of that is encapsulated in your term interesting. That's what you see I, yeah. in, in my career. And I, and, I, and I love that because I guess, you know, a lot of times we, we're drawn to those who are, who are like us. You know, mm-hmm. me, um, my career is definitely interesting because I went from being a biologist to being in med school and then I was in sales and in marketing and I think you know it's part of this thing about you know understanding that your identity is is, is who you is it's something you get to pick you get to decide who you are so right. who I was a few years ago I'm completely different now and That's I think right. the most important thing is that embracing you know like who I who I was growing up uh, culturally right and mm-hmm. you know but at the end of the day and this is something that my wife and I talk about you know, the human brain, uh, it's still the same brain we've had for like, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. It, it's not designed for modern time. And so we have to put a lot of conscious effort and energy, even though our brain shortcuts to these things where it's like, oh, this person is coming from, from this area or these groups, it's like, like this, that we have to say, I need to put more energy and effort into evaluating them as an individual. Right. Right. And not use shortcuts. As easy as that is, as unconscious as it is. But I think that's the thing that I love about it is that when I looked at your at your at your career in all these places, which half of the places people would die to have that kind of pedigree, mm-hmm. you have to reinvent yourself and say, now you know this was my identity, who you know who I was professionally, mm-hmm. culturally, all these things at this time. Now I think I'm going to take from these pieces that I've seen out in the world that I like. Here's where I'm going to move forward with, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the you know, uh, I, some of those moves were involuntary. And that's just what ah, I'm saying, yeah. like an acquisition. And, you know, some of these moves are involuntary and you're then forced to take all the pieces of things that you've learned to bring them with you, 
to address this new entity that you've never faced. You need to learn some new things, but you need to apply some old things and you've got to create something new and it need, you need to do it quickly and you need to be very competent, successful in getting it done. So this is when I say the ability to be agile and flexible because you don't know what's coming. A lot of joint changes in my career that you see, I didn't choose them or I wasn't pursuing them. I didn't um, have an aha moment to say, now, Dr. Jane Morgan, what would you like to do with your career? You've been doing this for three years. No, sort of change came upon me. Reorganizations is what organizations call it, right? Reorganizations. And lots of people suddenly find themselves in something else in a new world and you either sink or swim. Yeah. Right. And it sounds like, you know, in those times, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the things that elevated me as a person, as a professional, didn't happen because I, I made it happen. It happened because that's what the environment dictated. And I said, right. okay, either I have to change and evolve. And all these frameworks I had about how the world worked, the world's different. I have to change with it. That's right. Um, and I think it's, Especially, I mean, if there's one thing that COVID did, it accelerated a lot of trends. It showed us how quickly things can change and how you have to change with it. Even if it's as simple as, okay, hey, now I'm at home. My wife, my wife and I are home 24 hours a day. So we better find more things to do together that we're going to enjoy. We never used to work out together. Tough. Now I got to find a way to work out in a way that she enjoys and vice versa. Yeah. And, and either we're going to be happier or we're going to stay in the way we, we are and we're going to be miserable. Right. You know? Right, right. Just for everybody to, to know, we, we, we have a great marriage. We, You're making we it out. out. Yeah, we work out together. We have a great, we have a lot of fun. <laughs> I at least want to leave that hanging. <laughs> Getting all these messages. Like, like, hey, you know, your husband was saying that you guys. Uh, <laughs> well, just, you know, just to throw something else out there. I'm, I am a Pilates instructor. I have about 17 certifications in from two different schools, East Coast and West Coast, balanced body reformation, every piece of equipment from the chair to the Cadillac to the tower, you name it, I've done it. And I, I, and I have my own Pilates school. And so I now teach wow. uh, virtually what, three what's it called? called Pilates with Dr. Jane. Oh, you know, okay, so I'm plugging that into a show. That's me. See, and this is this is exactly the thing that I love because a, a lot of my friends are coming out of residency. A lot of phys young physicians who follow me online, they, they reach out for advice. And I tell them, I say, listen, you cannot put yourself in this little box that, oh, I'm a doctor during the day and these are things. The, mm -hmm. It's the same person. And there's no reason for you to be ashamed. Uh, one person we just interviewed, Dr. Andrew Sauer, who's the chief of uh, heart transplantation and heart failure over at KU. Uh -huh. He posts a lot about his personal life, about his, about, you know. Yeah, I follow him too. I see him too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And the thing is like, I'm, I'm sick and tired of having to feel either ashamed or to apologize for who I really am for in my personal and professional life. And I'm done with that. And I think that's the kind of message that people need to hear. And especially you, like, uh, I think a lot of physicians, they will listen to this podcast and say, you know what? Why, why is it, you know, a lot of the rules we follow are not actually rules. They're rules that we've somehow put in our head and accepted mm -hmm. that as like gospel, but it's not the case. It's mm -hmm. not the case at all. Yeah, no, you know, and, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, for someone like me or people like me, you know, our existence has been in trying to work around the rules because you get into organizations and you realize the rules really only apply to me. Others are not having to follow these rules, but they're being applied to me. So I need to be even more creative. 
And I think, you know, each time you've had to do that, trying to survive within a, a system that has a lot of inherent bias in it and the constant microaggressions, It's not a matter of growing stronger. You become increasingly more creative. And each time, if you're successful, each time you're moved or or you're you're moved or you move to another organization or another job role, all those abilities come with you. And so um, and you're able to um, create and provide deliverables to an organization at a level um, that's higher than many other uh, employees because you've had to rely on many other factors to have the exact same seat. And so, um, so, you know, and so, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, I, I call it a resilience factor. And yeah. yeah. And you know, it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's becoming more mainstream. And of course, like it, it took my generation, I'm I'm an older millennial to take things that are ancient wisdom and try and like, you know, uh, make it more mainstream. But this concept of, how do you do stoicism? Like practice suffering. So if you didn't grow up developing resilience, you got to find ways to uh, essentially schedule it yourself. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, you, you said something, and I it's one of those things where I knew this. And I think a lot of people, but it's the first time I heard someone articulate it my way. Is that as you, you know, have to deal with different, you know, whether it's microaggressions or, or di- different mm-hmm. different rules, different organizations, all right. these things that you pick these things up and you become more creative. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, because I was, I was speaking to uh, my father about this, when he came to the stage in Chicago in the 70s, there's a lot of xenophobia towards foreign foreign graduate positions. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a lot of hospitals in these, these days, a lot of them, by and large, are, are run by a lot of faculty who are foreign grads. And I think mm-hmm. part of it is that they realize this, and so they've had to become more creative of how do I how do I influence this organization? How do I work within it? Mm-hmm. But that's a wonderful way to think about right. When you're going through uh, very difficult obstacles, the mm-hmm. obstacle becomes a way and it develops, you know. Yeah, no, I think it's, you know, I think it's good. And one of the things that I um, often talk about is the interest that I have in improving minority recruitment into trials, into clinical trials. When you talk about the trials. You were on CNN recently discussing that, correct? I was on CNN talking about it. I've been talking about it for two or three years, I think. Actually, COVID has provided has provided an opening, an opportunity to discuss it um, relevant to the COVID vaccine trials that are being uh, pushed ahead very quickly. Yeah. And so, and so, as we um, as I took a look at those trials, I began to um, be able to speak directly and succinctly on why it's important to have black people in these trials. COVID is a great example. Uh, the community is being disproportionately impacted. Death is Yeah, death is. I didn't mean to interrupt, but to share, share with the audience, how much more is the black community affected by COVID? Because I want people to, to hear this. Yeah, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but certainly three to four times as much. Um, death is certainly much higher. Um, the, uh, transmission rate is higher. Um, the long-term sequela seems to be higher, meaning when I say long-term sequela, meaning long-term effects where you still are feeling unwell, even though you've converted to COVID negative, but somehow you're still not at a hundred percent. Something's not right. That that's, those are called long-term sequela. So, um, 
you know, these these companies are developing 80 or 90 or so companies, you know, rapidly developing vaccine trials. Um, and we're not necessarily a part of these trials. And yet we're the group that um, is most disproportionately impacted. And so how can you develop a drug, a device, a vaccine, um, and you don't have all kinds of people in them such that the treatment is relevant for everybody in our society? And so um, even before COVID, that is the point that I would make often when I would talk about minority recruitment into trials, but it's a difficult thing. It's somewhat of a taboo subject within uh, the black community. Um, we're not interested in that. We have a long history of uh, medical atrocities being committed against us in the name of science, in the name of research, cruelty, mm -hmm. just, just cruel um, and inhumane. And I think, you know, there's such a distrust of the healthcare system instead of in place of trying to understand whether or not you would be um, a great candidate for a trial. It's safer, not better, but it's safer to just say no. And then we don't ever have to worry about what someone is doing because it's not the information that's being provided that we concern ourselves with. It's the information that's not being provided. What, what didn't they tell us? What didn't I know to ask? And they're not telling me and they're going to do harm to me. Um, but what has happened is we're outside of the system and drugs are developed that are not relevant for us. And, you know, there are some things that are very specific to different cultures, you know, different um, um, enzyme reactions, that type of thing. We look at the kidneys, you know, I did a lot of cardiorenal work at Salve. And so that's why I say when you put these little pieces together and I do all, when I put together all the cardiorenal work I did at Salve, then I understand A1 adenosine um, antagonist factors. And I understand the renin, you know, aldosterone angiotensin system because I was leading those projects when I was at Salve. And so now when we talk about that, this is another leaf that I can bring in from a previous role to say, all things are not the same. Even, even the way that our kidneys work sometimes can have little nuances and we need to understand how drugs are eliminated and metabolized. Mm -hmm. And we've certainly had instances of drugs that are FDA approved that then had to subsequently be walked back because uh, black people were, were being harmed by them but we were never in the trials. And so that's kind of where we are. Certainly physicians, 80% of all black patients are seen by black physicians, but physicians also are not um, active in these trials. Uh, we are not asked to be principal investigators. The companies don't reach out to us to have us be principal investigators. Usually it's still white men. For the most part, the practice of a white male doesn't include black patients. And so there's that, that, that next separation where the black physicians and the number one reason that a person will agree to enroll in a trial is that a trusted physician asked them to enroll right. in a trial. Right. And so you start to see all these degrees of separation as to why. And then when we talk about just leadership, just leadership within clinical research, leadership within um, hospital systems, you don't see people like me, like you, like others, and so therefore, those perspectives are not at the table. Those positions are not advocated. That sensitivity is absent. And I think I've already discussed how oftentimes um, 
Our roles are marginalized such that we don't have a voice at the table. And so then again, we have yet a third degree of separation. And you can see how there's just a steady systemic disenfranchisement of the black patient from clinical trials, but clinical trials really can serve to close the gap in health equity because it brings you into the system. You have more frequent um, healthcare visits. You have uh, you know, a direct contact with the nurse or the research coordinator that's working on the trial. You often have your drugs or devices provided for free. So if you're uninsured or underinsured, you now have the capacity to have healthcare and yet all those things are, are, are absent because of multiple layers of big system. Right. Yeah, they sum up. And I think you're absolutely correct. And I think that's a, 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 a very correct way of putting it, which is, you know, isolated, these things don't seem, you know, you know, as, as, as bad, but as you start adding just even a couple of these things, you know, the, the effects and impacts are right. astounding. So how, right. how do we start? How do we start changing that? You know, essentially, at least you know, with these with these trials, in terms of recruiting more black uh, black patients yeah. to participate in them. Yeah, I think the first thing um, that we do is uh, begin to reach out to the black physicians who also um, are not involved for for all the same reasons. They come up through medical school. You're fairly isolated. Um, you go, you go in medical school for four years, you disappear pretty much. You just, you just disappear and you're there to take care of patients. Um, so the academic centers need to develop these relationships with black physicians who, who are treating all these black patients, as well as the corporations, the device and, and pharma companies. Um, secondly, um, hospitals and study sites must have people in clinical leadership who are competent to develop these programs and lead these programs such that there's visibility and cultural congruence that includes everyone. And that includes um, diversity of the staff as well, who will have that interface with the patient. And that's certainly a, a, you know, a call to action. And then when we look at social determinants of health, Maybe these study sites need to be set up, not just at major city uh, academic and medical centers, but out in rural uh, locations such that people don't have to deal with real life issues such as transportation and taking time off from work and babysitting and all those things um, that, that you know, you may not think about, but those are real obstacles. If someone has to travel two or three hours to a doctor's appointment and two or three hours home, or they don't have a car, they've got to take off from work, you know, that's crazy. All that stuff adds up and, and no people don't get involved. Yeah. Essentially, That's right. especially, during, especially during COVID. And, you know, what's really disheartening and, 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 a, and a tragedy is you're, you know, we saw this very early, the, the how COVID um, essentially had a much more a higher mortality with the black community. Right. And, you know, you mentioned cardiorenal syndrome. We're seeing that acute kidney injury is affecting what 37, 40 percent, at least from the reports in New York of these COVID patients. And guess who has, uh, you know, uh, at least from a from a population standpoint, a lot of issues with cardiovascular. It's is, is the black community. So it's again, COVID is one thing, but then you add these things, and so this community is going to be the one who suffers the most post COVID when quote unquote things go back to normal. This is absolutely correct. That's right, and it's one of the reasons clinical trials is a unique opportunity to begin to close the gap in health equity. 
Um, well, getting people have, into the system, essentially. Getting people into the system. Who I never thought of it like that. Really stay outside the system because the system is not safe for us. So, so it's not that medical treatment isn't excellent at the medical centers. It's not that you won't treat me. It's that you might mistreat me. Mm. I might be neglected. You know, am I am I safe? At least if I go to a black physician, I know I I have an understanding that this person is not going to do something to hurt me. I don't really have an understanding of that when I go to another physician or a healthcare system and all of this intrinsic bias that's invisible really to um the 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 keepers of society, shall I say, it's invisible to them. They've created it, but it's obvious in every part of everyday life that the rest of us have to exist in. And so, um, and that's the part that keeps people away because they recognize that their doctor, even though their doctor doesn't look like them, it's okay to go to a doctor that doesn't look like them. But they also understand that that doctor doesn't understand all that it takes for that person to get there, everything that it takes for that person to live, everything that it takes for that person to raise their children, to get clothing. And so therefore, this person can't really not treat me. This person can't heal me. That's a very good point. Healers. Very good point. This person cannot heal me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then... I see my black physician and we go and now we're back in the circle and the black physician is not connected to the academic center. The black physician is out in the community taking care of patients. And so round and round and round we go. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. I've never heard anybody wrap up that complicated of of an issue just in such a short amount of time, but you're you're absolutely right. And I think that what, what's most helpful is, you know, having the awareness of these things and, and understanding them and discussing them. And then more importantly, you know, we have these tools like social media. So how do we use these things to connect to people and start raising the awareness and, and starting those initiatives? Are, 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 are there any initiatives like that? I mean, for, for, let's say the industry side, you know, are there societies, are there groups like what, what's the best place to start and look? Yeah. So that's a, a big question. We are working on that. Um, um, I am the co-founder, there are three others of us founding a group uh, called, I believe we're calling it, we're working on it, very new, um, The Color of Science. And our uh, initiative for the first year is going to be focused exclusively on recruitment of minorities into um, clinical trials, educating minorities um, on clinical trials and what is the oversight of the FDA now that wasn't there in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s when these experiments with, with the Tuskegee men were being done, when Henrietta Lacks was coming through the system and we're still benefiting from these HeLa cells. What's different now? And that's that's the conversation that we're beginning to have with our communities. And that's going to be our our launch mission for our first year. Um, I think as well, we've got to start to insist that people that look like me, that look like you, that look like all other people, black and brown, are in key leadership positions in research and are not marginalized and moved out. 
such that those voices are at the table, such that patients can be empowered and there can be an assurance of health equity throughout the system, which is what we're supposed to be about in a healthcare system. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And more often than not, it feels very much like a disease care system. And when it's a disease care system, you're focused on treating, which is right. one factor. It's not the healing right. part. Because once that's the big thing is that once the patient leaves the hospital, guess what happens? They're back in the same environment. That's and that's right. when the healing is, you know, that's why they end up keeping, keep on coming back. Exactly. You know, and I think that especially me, the, the short amount of time I was in medical school on the border, you know, we had these patients come back and it was kind of blatantly obvious. It's like, you know, it's not that these people are stupid mm-hmm. or, or that they don't care or anything. It's just that healing is not an easy thing. That's right. right. It's it will, technically, I guess it, it can be easy, but it's not simple. Yeah, it's easy for you to that's keep right. your diabetes low. Don't go home and eat these things and drink these right. things. That's, that's easy. It's not simple because you have to understand from a community as a culture, right? What are those dynamics and how do they influence things like food, healthcare, all these things? And, and how do and, and what access do you have to them? Do you have access to food? Exactly. Exactly. You know, exactly. Food, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think that, you know, Kevin Mahoney, who's a CEO over at PenMed, uh, talked about this. Like for them, they launched um, a free app for behavioral health at the beginning of COVID because they realized how many of their staff and employees don't have access because it's like you have to get a, an appointment, you have to go get referrals. this. So he said, we need to make this as, as easy as possible. And I think that on the plus side of COVID, I, actually, I don't even want to say the plus side of COVID, it accelerated trends that we, we needed to happen and it just happened a lot faster. Like telemedicine, like saying, hey, people are going to be stuck at home. We need to get better access because the world we live in is technically designed for a lot of people who are essentially dead these days. It's, it's an old world. So how do we design it to be better? Because, you know, these, these are the facts, whether you and I like it or not, this is the reality. And so we have to figure out how do we fix these things and innovate around them. Otherwise, it's going to perpetuate and get worse, right? Right. Um, I, wa- I want to be mindful of your time. We got two minutes to, to, our, to our stop time. I, I, we said it's going to be a California stop, so we're going to like kind of go a little bit past it. But quick, rapid-fire questions for you. You can take as long or as short as you'd like to answer them. So um, we'll do that. First question to you, if you had a billboard that went in front of every single hospital in every single major city in the U.S. for a whole year, and everyone's going to read it, healthcare workers, physicians, nurses, everyone, okay, what would that billboard say and why? Um, that billboard would say... And take your time. It's a tough question. That, that billboard would say, we are in. It would be hashtag, we are in. And the reason that billboard would say that is it would be a voice from the African-American community that is saying that we're standing up and we have decided that we are going to be counted in clinical trials now. And we decided that we're going to move forward and we're going to request this information um, and we are going to demand that our physicians um, get involved in these trials such that they can talk with us about it and we can hear it from a trusted uh, partner. And I would say that billboard would just say hashtag we are in. I love that. And you should start that hashtag if you haven't already. Mm -hmm. So my next question, um, 
It might be the last one because I know we have to wrap up, but I do want to uh, make sure that we talk about how people could follow and reach you. But um, I know you're a reader like myself. If you're watching this on video, everyone, you know, you can see that I have a lot of books from me. What's a book, um, either you, either a favorite book or book you've read most recently that you've been gifting most often to people and why? You know, I rarely gift a book. I'll tell you what I read. I read a lot. Mm. Um, I've been, you know, so distraught over the, the, the social structure and uh, sort of... Uh, um, Deconstruction, maybe deconstruction of our social fabric in the last three or four years. Um, I've read read White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, um, which I thought was very eye-opening, really just discussing from a white person um, the contempt that many white people have for Black people and how it starts early and what that means. I I read uh, White Rage, by Carol Anderson, which was along the same vein, but going through historical aspects regarding um, the need for white superiority and that there is a need for the inferiority of blacks for white superiority to exist. So, mm. um, and, and, and so I've been reading that. I read Grit by Angela Duckworth. And I think it, it applies to me a lot when, I, when you talk about my quote unquote interesting career. And Grit is a study by, uh, I believe she's a psychiatrist, of different people all across uh, the world. And what differentiates, including in military, what differentiates people who have that stick it, stick it outness? Mm-hmm. They, they stay and they work at it and they work at it and work at it as opposed to others who fall off to, and say, oh, this is this is too hard. I'm going to try something else. Mm-hmm. Not that one is better or worse. You know, we need people to try a lot of things and we need some people to stick to things. Mm-hmm. And it's called grit. And so I've, I've read that book as well. So I've, I've, I've read a lot of books. <laughs> no, those are good recommendations. Uh, very. So real quick. And again, we really appreciate you spending some time with us. I'm just going to tell you right now, I have a feeling that uh, we're going to be, I'm, I'm going to be asked to have you back. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> FYI, it's just, that, that'll happen faster than you know it. But real quick, you know, um, for those who are listening and those who are watching, what's the best way to find you, to follow you? And I'll be leaving your social handles uh, down in the show. Oh, you know what, that, and I, and I, re, I need to, I, I do not have that. So I'm on LinkedIn, okay. um, but I also oh, teach. Yeah, you can find Jane Morgan MD is J A Y N E Morgan MD, and if you uh, let me know that you were on this podcast, that's great. And um, the um, I am looking to start an Instagram oh, page totally. you follow me on Pilates. So maybe look for it in the next two or three weeks, and it's called Pilates with Dr. Jane. Got it. And, yeah. and um, your, uh, your uh, Pilates, the website you have, is it uh, PilatesWithDrJane.com? That it, it is, there is no website either. So I haven't so started more, a website. More of a, reason, more of a reason to do the Instagram then. I think I'm going to just do Instagram. I sort of was, yeah. uh, you know, like everybody else pushed into the virtual world with my Pilates. I've been teaching for 10 years. Um, but started teaching virtually in April. I really was just doing it as for about 60 days or so to sort of bridge my clients until we could get back into the studio. And now it's, you know, it looks as if it's going to be a permanent thing. So I'll be starting an Instagram page and a web page, but the IG page will go up first. 
Yeah, and when they're when they're ready, you just let me know. I'll update the show notes. So yeah, cool. that'll be great, Doctor Morgan. Thank you so much. Stick around for just a second. I'll, I'll yeah, absolutely. So sure. thank you all for listening. It's been another episode of Hills and Valleys. Again, we'll leave the show in the show notes all these uh, links for Doctor Morgan's uh, pages. And as always, we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Hills and Valleys. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on our podcast. That way you're notified of new episodes as they're released. And if you're not already, please go ahead and follow Potrero Medical on all our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And we'll see you next time.